Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for Loving Liberty. Man, I think I got it all out of my system in the last hour of the program, but uh, I'm going to ask you, bear with me on this. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to let a good rant go to ra- to waste, just like I wouldn't want to let a good crisis go to waste if I was uh, perhaps a politician or something like that. By the way, if you want to uh, join in the conversation, you can do so simply by calling 801-331-8113. Couple of different things going on here. Um, I, I love the the talk about how well you know now that all the the focus is on uh, Trump and the possibility of impeachment. What's the guy's name? David Swain asks this question. He says, "I wonder what this sudden impeachment frenzy is meant to distract us from." And as crazy as it sounds, you know what? This is a very good habit to have for the times in which we live. When there is something that is dominating the news cycle, especially if it dominates it for, I don't know, several days in a row. One of the questions you really need to be asking yourself is, what is this supposed to keep me from noticing? I know it sounds conspiratorial, and so does the next question you should be asking, and that is, who benefits from the way that this story is being reported? But David Swain said there were two things that came to mind when he asked himself the question, what is this meant to distract us from? All this talk about impeachment, what is it keeping us from looking at? Well, he says there are two things, but there may be others. And I think these two are actually probably pretty solid reasons. Number one, the day before the whistleblower popped up was the day the Fed started intervening in the repo market. See, I wasn't even aware of that. Now I want to go do some research on it and see what exactly does that mean. Secondly, it was just a day or two before the U.S. announced that it would be sending more troops to Saudi Arabia to deepen our foreign entanglement with the kingdom. Okay, I added that last little part, but I think George Washington would agree with me. And if you don't, uh, if you don't think I'm telling it straight, go read a copy of his farewell address and you'll see he counseled against foreign entanglements and intrigue that draws us into the problems and the conflicts of other nations where we really don't have a compelling interest. But I want to talk for a moment here about the whistleblower phenomenon. Because in addition to the salivating over the prospect of, ah, this time we've got him, we're going to get that guy who never should have been elected or never was legitimately elected in the minds of many of the media. We're going to get him out of office one way or the other, thanks to a whistleblower. And Caitlin Johnstone writing about this says, you know, it's very curious to see the word whistleblower trending in news headlines lately, but not for any reasons that a sane person would hope for. She actually gives some really good examples of what those headlines look like. Here's the Washington Post headline. Read the whistleblower complaint regarding President Trump's communications with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That was the Washington Post. Then MSNBC's headline, Trump responds to hearing on whistleblower complaint. The Guardian in the UK says Trump Ukraine scandal. What did the whistleblower say and how serious is it? 
Not to be outdone, here's The Guardian. Whistleblower complaint says the White House tried to lock down Ukrainian call letters. Or call records, rather. Sorry, too many years in radio. My apologies. Then there was CBS. Whistleblower's complaint is a devastating report from a savvy official. Interesting. So I guess uh, whistleblowing is good then? If that's the case, why aren't uh, why aren't these guys celebrating? Oh, I don't know. Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden. Can you see the disconnect here? Or at least can can you see there's there's a double standard being applied here? Well, if someone's blowing the whistle in a way that uh, politically uh, may benefit us, why that's uh, that's a very good and upstanding person and by gosh, more people should be aware of this. But if someone is blowing the whistle on actual government misdeeds, dirty deeds being done in our names, yeah, crickets, nothing. Caitlin Johnstone asks, so who is this savvy official? Who is this courageous whistleblower who boldly shone the light of truth upon the mechanisms of power in the interest of the common man? Who is this brave, selfless individual who set off an impeachment inquiry by taking a stand and revealing the fact that the U.S. president made a phone call in July urging Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to help investigate corruption allegations against Joe Biden and his son. Well, believe it or not, according to the New York Times, this brave, noble whistleblower who mainstream media are currently championing is an officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. Quote, the whistleblower who revealed that President Trump sought foreign help for his reelection and that the White House sought to cover it up is a CIA officer who was detailed to work at the White House at one point, according to three people familiar with his identity. That's from the New York Times. The man has since returned to the CIA. Little else is known about him. And Caitlin Johnstone says, so there you have it. A mysterious stranger from the lying, torturing, propagandizing, drug trafficking, assassinating, coup staging, warmongering, psychopathic CIA was working in the White House and heroically provided the political and media class with politically powerful information out of the goodness of his heart and then vanished into the Langley sunset. Clearly, there is nothing suspicious about this story at all. Sorry, my sarcasm detector was just uh, starting to smoke once again. Now, she says, in all seriousness, even to call this spook a whistleblower is ridiculous on its face. You don't get to call someone from the U.S. intelligence community a whistleblower unless they're actually whistleblowing on the U.S. intelligence community. That's not a thing. A CIA officer who exposes information about government officials is an operative performing an operation unless proven otherwise. Because that's what the CIA does. It liberally leaks information wherever it's convenient for CIA agendas, while withholding all other information behind a veil of government secrecy. So a CIA officer who exposes information about CIA wrongdoings without the CIA's permission is a whistleblower. A CIA who exposes information about someone else is just a spook doing their spooky things. You can recognize the latter by the way the, the mass media supports applauds and employs them. You can recognize the former by the way they've been persecuted, imprisoned, and or died under mysterious circumstances. But if you listen to the billionaire media, she says, we should be calling this CIA officer a whistleblower. 
We should be enraged at the New York Times for exposing that CIA officer's identity, and we should be raising a small fortune on GoFundMe for the legal aid that the CIA officer will never need. Journalist Michael Tracy tweeted uh, on this new development yesterday, the idea that the media needs to protect a high-level CIA officer making explosive claims about the president, which has now been used as the basis for impeachment proceedings, is such an insane perversion of journalistic ethics. And she says, well, all this political media class cheerleading for whistleblower protections is going on. The most prominent whistleblower in America remains imprisoned for taking a principled stand against secret grand juries while being driven into crippling debt. She's talking about Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, the one who first released some of the uh, very inconvenient things that were being done by the U.S. government and by our military to WikiLeaks. And Chelsea Manning is racking up fines of $1,000 per day while being locked up in a federal detention center in Virginia for refusing to testify against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. So here you have the mainstream press that's so keen to champion a whistleblower who works for the CIA and provided information which feeds into Americans' fake partisan pro-wrestling feud has been almost completely silent on the actual whistleblower who exposed actual U.S. war crimes. The courageous whistleblower Chelsea Manning has now been held in a federal detention center in Alexandria, Virginia, for more than six months, reads a recent article by World Socialist Website, one of the only news outlets to consistently report on Manning's plight. It says Manning has not been charged with or committed any crime, She was sent to jail March 8th of 2019 for refusing to testify before a secret grand jury that has indicted persecuted WikiLeaks founder and publisher Julian Assange, who published the information she leaked exposing rampant U.S. imperialist criminality. Now, I'm going to come back to this article here in just a few moments, but I think she makes a very solid case here. Real whistleblowing is going to involve some risk. Edward Snowden would back me up on this, so would Julian Assange, so would Chelsea Manning, if they weren't all locked up, tighter than a turtle's belly button. But to sit there and see the media going gaga and making doe eyes over the CIA whistleblower who may have some damaging information on Trump, how can a person look at this and not see the partisan game that's afoot here? We'll come back to this article just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Sharing with you an article here from Caitlin Johnstone, who, you know, I she has such a uh, unique collection of uh, views on the world. And there's some that I'm like, wow, I just can't go there. Very, very anti-religion on some things and, and very uh, pro, I don't know if, I don't know what the right word is, uh, 
new age thinking on others. But man, does this girl have some insights and, and whatever differences I may have in her slant on things. I love her ability to just spell it out. I think she does a marvelous job here. So she talks about how the mainstream media is defending the CIA's whistleblower while ignoring actual whistleblowers who have brought to light actual wrongdoing on the part of the United States government. Now, she's quoting from a site called World Socialist Website. Listen to what they have to say, though. WSW says the vindictive treatment of Chelsea Manning has included administrative segregation. That's a prison euphemism for solitary confinement and being fined a thousand dollars per day for refusing to answer grand jury questions. By the time she might be released in October of 2020, she'll be left owing the U.S. government as much as four hundred forty thousand dollars. Now, convicted anti-war activist Jeremy Hammond, who provided intelligence documents to WikiLeaks, has also been brought to the same jail as Manning in order to coerce him into giving false testimony. And here's what Ed Ed Snowden had to say. uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Edward Snowden had to say in response to an Onion article satirizing the latest hypocrisy. The Onion article headline says Chelsea Manning, reality winner. Excitedly hoping nation's newfound approval of whistleblowers will get them out of jail. And he says, on a scale of ha-ha to LOL, how likely would you say it is that the politician's sudden interest in whistleblowing will lead to the reform of the Espionage Act, which the government has routinely used to jail the sources behind some of the most important stories in U.S. history? Yeah. I think it's somewhere between slim and fat. That's how big the chance is. Pointing out such hypocrisy, says Caitlin Johnstone, is a common practice in politics. So common that it often wears a bit thin these days, especially since it's frequently done in disingenuous ways. But when implemented with intellectual honesty, it does serve a very useful purpose. It shows when people aren't really being truthful about the position that they're taking. The political and media class of the United States do not care about whistleblowers. They don't care about truth and they don't care about justice. They don't care about holding power to account because they exist only to serve power. Holy cow, let that think in. The political and media class of the United States only exists to serve power. She says, I don't pretend to know what the CIA's game is here. It probably isn't to remove Trump from office because everybody knows that will not happen. And failed impeachments historically boost a president's popularity. But she says, I do know that everyone cheerleading for this fake whistleblower while ignoring the real ones has exposed themselves. I'm going to have to agree with you on that one, Caitlin. And thank you for uh, speaking out. Thanks for saying something when you had the opportunity to do so. I just I wish more of us had that same uh, sense of, of outrage that drives her to to speak out on these things and write about them. Without ceasing. I know you have better things to do. You're busy. I'm busy too. But I am so grateful for the people who, despite the the seeming futility of it all, still work to publish the truth, however they can. All right, moving on. A couple of different things here. Uh, 
I was going to do a piece on on how does impeachment work, but I think I'm I think I'm going to save that maybe for sometime next week. I I don't want to get too caught up in this in this impeachment flytrap. Just because I really do believe it's it's likely a distraction. Now, this could probably be said of many of the other topics which I'm going to be sharing with you. But always, always, I want to try to bring things back to the principles that are at stake. So you're going to think this is just another distraction, but uh, let's let's talk about the principle at stake when it comes to gender neutral dolls. Toying with Kids Sexuality. This is an article by Ann Farmer, published on intellectualtakeout.org. I hadn't even heard about these gender-neutral dolls until, when was it, yesterday? And the only reason I knew about it was because I, I saw a... Uh, I saw a, a really remarkable headline on the Babylon Bee talking about uh, a new gender-neutral doll, which originally out- outraged conservatives. And I could see that. I can see conservatives going, hey, this is not right. You know, you can't do this. But at the same time, um, it, it, they, they did this wonderful story about the new gender-neutral doll, which automatically pepper sprays children who misgender it and then calls the police to notify them of the uh, misgendering offense. The image that goes with it is pretty hilarious. But why would people want to do genderless dolls? Here's what Ann Farmer has to say. Toymaker Mattel has launched a new range of gender-neutral dolls on the market, and Telegraph writer Celia Walden has had an early preview. Now, she tells us she was prepared to mask her horror at a creation that would surely only be an extension of the warped gender narrative currently confusing young children, only to find out that she actually liked them. There are six dolls apparently available in a variety of skin tones. They have the straight up and down figures and full faces of her own seven-year-old daughter and a long-haired wig cap fitting easily over a doll's short hair. Additionally, none of their 12 wardrobe options were pink and sparkly or camouflage-tastic. And all were exactly the kinds of styles and patterns that her daughter would choose from H&M Kids. Now, Walden was immediately convinced that her daughter, along with every other five to eight year old child, the the range the range is aimed at, would naturally pick one up and play with it. Move over, Barbie. Meet the world's wokest doll, says the headline on uh, the Telegraph. She says most people would agree that it's sensible not to sexualize children, but there is a vast difference between not sexualizing them and socially engineering them. Mattel's Creatable World Online Marketing Material is awash with the words inclusive and diverse, says Walden. And those she spoke to and those she spoke to made a point of repeatedly and ferociously rejecting, quote, stereotypes and labels, concepts clearly borrowed from the playbook of the genderologists. In fact, Megan Perryman of Let Toys Be Toys, a voluntary group challenging gender stereotypes, heartily approves of Mattel's project while saying that they're not involved in the broader gender conversation. She says our aim is to get rid of those labels and allow children to feel they can play the way they want to. Kids don't like adults being prescriptive. And we also know for certain that toys stimulate the brains in in different ways. So the bigger range of toys children can play with, the more they'll develop in a well-rounded way. However, says Ann Farber, Children, some some children still go to uh, many children still go to some kind of play school now. And although they can choose from a wide range of toys, would you believe most kids still choose gender specific ones? 
In fact, Walden found, despite all efforts to steer her daughter away from everything pink and princessy, she was naturally drawn to those things. Her nephew, on the other hand, was fascinated by diggers before he could talk. In fact, Monica Dreger, vice president of Global Consumer Insights at Mattel, confirmed Walden's experience, even while claiming the gender-neutral dolls are just a response to the demands of the children themselves. That was what we saw from our research, too, Drager said, while adding, is that because we trained them to think that way? I don't know. We'll come back to this article here in a few minutes, but I'm curious. Have you noticed this about kids? This is kids are kids are slow to get on the social justice bandwagon. You know why? Because they haven't been misled by a bunch of artificial rules and sophistry. So the idea of uh, little girls wanting to play with, you know, dolls and pretend that it's a baby, well, that seems pretty natural. Now, truth be told, I played with dolls when I was a kid, but mine were called G.I. Joe. <laughs> Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Let me give the phone number here one more time, just in case the urge hits and you'd like to weigh in. 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. So we're talking about these gender-neutral dolls. Now look, I I don't really have a lot of heartburn about a gender-neutral doll. And here's why. Because kids are pretty good at working with imagination. In fact, if you really want to see where kids absolutely shine... It's in using their imagination to have fun. That's part of the joy of being a kid. So it isn't like, well, these these dolls need to have all these, uh, you know, social justice, you know, checklists checked off. No. Look, you give any little boy a stick that is even remotely shaped like a gun. And there's a really good chance, I mean like 99% chance, that you're going to see him running around going, kapow, kapow, you know, in a, in a matter of a few minutes. Kids are like that. You know why they're like that? Because they're innocent. They're not cynical. They're not, uh, they don't have this agenda. There's no guile in them. They're trying to, you know, fool people into doing something. At the same time, I, I have to wonder, you know, if... Uh, if there is not a concerted effort to try to create confusion on the part of these kids, and I don't think it's the dolls necessarily that are the most likely source of this. If I were to point to something that I'd be like, well, you want to freak out a kid or at least make him go, huh? Take him to drag queen story time at your local library. I know it's all in fun. It's all just ha ha tee hee. Look, it's a, it's someone dressed up like a princess, but he sounds like a man. But it does send kind of a weird image or a weird message to the kids. And again, because they're innocent, because they haven't been led astray by all the political intrigue and the artificial rules. Kids are pretty good. At, uh, at, at expressing that, huh? That's not right. Or sometimes just saying outright, that's weird. They can say that. Adults are not able to say that, but uh, but the kids can say that. 
The article here, here says whether or not preverbal children can be trained to act in sexist ways. Some people obviously believe uh, they can be trained to play in non-sexist ways. Clearly, children's current choices do not meet with the approval of those who would insist that children are being brainwashed by their parents and the wider family to choose gender-specific toys. Now, the article says Ms. Walden notes that uh, we could have the nature-nurture debate till the end of time, but no one can now argue for the nature because they'll immediately be labeled a eugenicist. However, the real eugenicists need not worry since their aims are being carried out by the nurturists who, with their campaigns for contraception and abortion, do as little real nurturing as possible and are not at all child-friendly. And Farmer says, my guess is that future, or that nurturists, rather, would prefer a naturist doll, shorn of all sexual accoutrements like clothes. Feminists hate the whole idea of girls playing with dolls because it encourages them to think about motherhood. But the problem in any case is getting boys to play with them. This was, after all, why they created Action Man. And Walden reports that Drager's honest about how, like, <laughs> excuse me, how likely boys who have never experienced an interest in dolls are to pick up a creatable world doll. Not very. Although she doesn't think that was the aim of creating the range. All in all, gender-neutral mania is a godsend for the toy barons if they could only get little girls equally interested in playing with diggers. So much the better for their till receipts. But it seems that the left-wing gender fascists are not only doing the work of eugenicists, but filling the coffers of capitalists. Megan Perryman, for her part, insists the differences between girls and boys are not as huge as people would have us think. And although Ms. Walden agrees, she believes that gender neutrality is a 2019 adult construct. You think? Perhaps the genderologists are playing with children like dolls because they themselves were never given dolls to play with. At any rate, widening children's choice, choices rather, in the matter of playthings may succeed in simply overturning the whole gender bandwagon by real children making real choices. Again, this is from Ann Farmer, gender-neutral dolls toying with kids' sexuality. Interesting. One thing I got to say about the time we live in, and that is... Every time I think I I could not be surprised, I get surprised. There's always a new direction. There's always something that's uh, right there on the cusp of of coming into being. And I'm like, really? That's okay. Well, here we go. Here we go. I don't want to begin to guess at where this might be leading us. So do we need to brainwash kids to be more inclusive? No. No. Although I do think we can teach them to be exclusive, and I think we can teach them to be exclusionary. Sometimes uh, just through example. But I have to admit, I really I get uh, I get my back up at the idea that we've got to we've got to socially engineer these kids to have correct attitudes. Let them be kids. You only get to be innocent for so long. And right now, it just seems like there's a, a very serious contest to see who can strip the most innocence away from the kids at the youngest possible age. To me, that seems like a despicable kind of goal, but I see it happening. Sometimes it's through the entertainment industry. Sometimes it's, you know, just through the the social justice channels. Either way, though, it's it. It's not necessary. 
All right, I'm going to shift gears here. We've got to go to a different topic. friend posted this earlier this morning. This is from the Center for Individualism. As intelligent individuals, we should all unbrainwash ourselves about climate change. Oh. It says whether it's the Green New Deal in which climate change abatement is only one of several radical proposals or the general brainwashing of younger generations about the impending end of the world. The absence of rational analysis and willful ignorance of facts is counterproductive. Rather than promoting a feasible approach to dealing with climate change, the magnitude of which remains uncertain, the focus is on unfeasible approaches and unachievable goals. Leaders from around the world will be added in earnest this week during the United Nations Climate Action Summit 2019. Now, many approaches to climate change are analogous to saying that uh, the, the best way to produce energy is to build perpetual motion machines, which perform work indefinitely without an energy source, a concept that violates the laws of thermodynamics. In other words, the goal is laudable, but the means to achieve it is literally fantastic. In the case of climate change, the anti-hydrocarbon contingent seeks to violate the basic tenets of science and economics. The article here says the reality is that there are insurmountable or cost prohibitive obstacles to the scale up of renewable energy and creating the necessary infrastructure for it. So here are some facts to provide a reality check. Number one, solar conversion to electricity is already more than 75 percent toward the maximum possible efficiency, according to the laws of physics. In other words, there are no possible breakthroughs that will reduce significantly the sheer numbers of solar panels needed to increase the overall power derived from the sun. Likewise, with respect to efficiency, wind conversion to electricity is already approximately two-thirds of the way to the maximum physical limit. The number of wind turbines would need to increase massively. Next, it points out a single wind turbine requires 900 tons of steel, 2,500 tons of, con- of concrete, and 45 tons of plastic produced from hydrocarbons and not recyclable. Solar is even more resource consumptive. The mining of silver, indium, and rare earths would have to soar up by up to over 20-fold over today's yields just to meet the Paris Climate Accord's goals. The mining process for both those minerals and the battery materials itself is dirty, ecologically destructive, and consumes significant amounts of hydrocarbon energy, and the plastic needed for solar and wind requires hydrocarbons. Next, it says no-step function improvement in batteries has been attained in spite of 25-plus years of huge investment, including that from dozens of innovative startup companies. Counting on a breakthrough at this point is probably wishful thinking. Although I've got some high hopes myself for those nanocarbon tubes. Even though I don't know the first thing about them. Hmm? Next, it says to store the energy equivalent to a single barrel of oil, which can be stored in a $20 container at a minimal cost, requires $200,000 and 10 tons of Tesla batteries. There's more here that will uh, help to uh, solidify a little bit of rationality in the uh, climate change debate. But we're going to have to put that off and come back to it here in just a few moments because, unfortunately, I am up against the break. So we will take the break. We'll pay a couple of bills and talk to you just the other side of these messages. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an article from the Center for Individualism about, as intelligent individuals, we should all unbrainwash ourselves about climate change. Now, this one strikes a pretty good middle ground here. I don't see it as being necessarily dismissive of, ah, there's no such thing as climate change, or, you know, going full Greta with, you know, you've robbed me of my childhood. How dare you? <gasps> anyway, some of the things to consider when it comes to, here, here's part of the reality check when it comes to renewable energy. Do you realize Tesla's Gigafactory produces only enough batteries in an entire year to store three minutes of U.S. power demand? That's not enough to handle a cloudy or calm day for the renewables, let alone to provide the needed two months of backup. Proper backup would require the equivalent of nearly 30,000 production years of similar factories. And by the way, when it comes to the cars, a single car requires a thousand pounds of batteries. This, in turn, requires mining, moving, and processing some 500,000 pounds of raw materials. So imagine scaling that up to provide batteries for a public utility the size of Con Ed or Pacific Gas and Electric. And neither batteries nor wind nor solar equipment lasts forever. Currently available state-of-the-art batteries have a useful life of just seven years, which leads to massive disposal and pollution issues. And all the steel and other elements of retired equipment needs to go somewhere. Now, on the other hand, a shale oil rig produces almost 15 times as much energy, whether it's per hour, per day, or per year, as two 500-foot turbines turning in the wind. Putting it another way, one producing rig is the equivalent of 30 wind turbines. Which, by the way, are unsightly. At least the wind turbine farms are unsightly. And apparently kill huge numbers of birds. Finally, this article points out the intermittent nature of wind and solar imposes huge infrastructure and operating costs due to the necessary continual rebalancing of the electrical grid. Extensive, reliable backup sources are needed in the absence of massive batteries at every wind or solar site, which inevitably will consume hydrocarbons. Now, the article says here this non-existent exhaustive list illustrates that salvation with respect to energy production doesn't lie in solar and wind, especially given that it ignores the subject of transportation, where weight and capacity considerations aren't trivial. Electric cars are feasible, but they still need a source of electricity to be charged. But electric airplanes, that's difficult to conceive. So where does that leave us? Well, there are several short-term possibilities that may help on the supply side. Greater use of hydropower, large-scale and small-scale nuclear. The last of these is largely untapped but intriguing. Now, think about this. Consider that hundreds of ships are powered safely and reliably by small-scale nuclear plants. Although not without some problems, these have operated largely uneventfully for many years. And because of their size, they pose manageable risks and waste disposal. The long-term solution, we believe, is nuclear fusion. Now, there's no significant waste. The supply of raw ingredients is essentially unlimited. But significant technical obstacles remain. The most likely time frame still 30 to 50 years out. On the demand side, efficiency measures can and should continue. Household appliances should become drastically or have become drastically more efficient in the last decade or two. Even ordinary gasoline cars have improved greatly. And the article says these efforts should continue. 
although we should not forget that these advances are primarily applicable to industrialized countries. Plug-in Teslas aren't likely to take sub-Saharan Africa by storm any time in the foreseeable future. Finally, the article points out mankind is resourceful enough to find innumerable ways to adapt to climate change. Many of the predictions of planetary doom are almost certainly exaggerated. Common sense measures such as protecting rainforests, planting more trees, fortifying coastal protection, and abandoning overly vulnerable property will be necessary. But these costs are imminently manageable. There are also a lot of ingenious approaches as to geoengineering, the deliberate large-scale intervention in the Earth's natural systems to counteract climate change. These include solar radiation management and greenhouse gas sequestration. Bottom line is we are best served by unbrainwashing ourselves about climate change that is dispensing with the hyperbole and nescience that distract from reality. The drumbeat of the apocalypse may demand responses, but especially from politicians... So far, it hasn't elicited the right ones. Kind of a cool article. I'll post this on the show notes. This was written by Andrew I. Fillett. He's a physician, and oh, and also Henry I. Miller, who's a physician and molecular biologist. Both of these guys were undergraduates at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Ooh, impressive. All right, one final note here. I wanted to share with you a, a really nice piece by C.L. Bryant. Yes, the C.L. Bryant, the Reverend C.L. Bryant, whose show you can hear coming up at 10 o'clock Mountain Daylight Time this morning on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. It's titled, Why the Constitution is a Beacon of Hope. And he says, my ancestors were brought to America in chains more than 150 years ago, robbed of human dignity. But now I stand here in the greatest nation, my nation, the world has ever known, where I've pursued my own American dream. And he says, our country has a long and complicated history with race, but we've come an extraordinary distance. C.L. Bryant says, my story couldn't be told in any other country because it's only here in America that I've been gifted the blessings of liberty endowed by the U.S. Constitution. And he says, that's why I find myself shaking my head at people like Ezra Levin, co-director of a progressive activist group called Indivisible. His organization spent Constitution Day denouncing the document as racist and attacking the people who love it. And he used social media to reopen old wounds and pit Americans against each other based on our differences. Kind of ironic for a group called Indivisible, don't you think? C.L. Bryant says, Mr. Levin is missing the point. Americans fought a long and bloody war to make sure the rights outlined in the Constitution would apply to everyone. They didn't fight a war to abolish the Constitution. They fought a war to broaden its reach to all people. A century later, the Civil Rights Movement continued the march toward equal treatment under the law. During that time, he says, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. never gave up on the Constitution. In the historic 1963 I Have a Dream speech, King told the crowd, quote, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note, 
or at least as, as far as her citizens of color are concerned. But he says, we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. And here C.L. Bryant's just pointing out, King knew the framework of the Constitution was sound, even if the application was flawed. Like our founders, he wanted to use the document to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority, whether it be a political party, race, ethnicity, or even just a single individual. He knew the document was more than a framework. It was a promise that could be used to inspire and encourage America to live up to its own ideals. Perhaps it was a lesson learned from the writings of abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who had famously changed his view of the Constitution throughout his lifetime. After escaping slavery, Douglas was a loud critic of the document. It was through his continued education he realized the Constitution was a powerful tool to promote equality for all. So C.L. Bryant says the road to equality has been a long one, but he says, I challenge you to find a single nation anywhere in the world that has gone farther than the United States to protect the rights of all individuals. And he's right, by the way. He says the promises made in our Constitution are the reason the United States endures as a beacon of hope and freedom for those around the world. We are the greatest success story the world has ever known. We are constantly aspiring to be a better nation today than we were the day before. Though we may disagree over policies and politics, we, will all, we must always stand united around this promise. Again, this is from the Reverend C.L. Bryant. Our C.L. Bryant, as I like to think of him. <laughs> And you can catch his show here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network coming up at 10 o'clock this morning, Mountain Time. It's interesting because I, on the one hand, I do believe that the Constitution was a document that, uh, that I believe it had God's blessing. I believe that the individuals who, who uh, crafted it were raised up by God for that very purpose. Because I believe that uh, that establishment of limited government and greater personal freedom, especially religious freedom, fits into the greater providential plan of the creator of the universe. But as John and as John Adams pointed out, it's a document that only works when the people themselves are moral and religious. The further we drift away from those ideals the less useful that document is going to be at restraining our government to its proper role. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 